Hi, and welcome to Spaceship Earth. This is your bud, Phil Ward. How are you guys doing today? This is the first episode, and I'm pleased to have my friend Matt McAfee with me. I uh, met Mac Matt McAfee about like five years ago um, at a nuclear power conference in uh, in Palo Alto, and uh, at that time, Matt was working at the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, so, so Matt, how are you? I'm great, man. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. For sure, for sure. So, where should we start? Um, yeah, just tell us about yourself, man. You got it. So, um, hi, everyone. I'm Matt McAfee. I'm uh, from a small town right outside of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, born and raised. I uh, went to the University of Maine. I got my degree in mechanical engineering technology and two minors in renewable energy. I graduated 2015. I, uh, as Phil said, did a fellowship at the Breakthrough Institute, which is an environmental think tank in uh, Oakland, California. And I focused on the land use, the issue of land use, energy intensity, and trying to figure out nuclear's overall footprint, uh, accounting for everything in generation and fuel. Uh, usage uh, on land and um, I've done a little before that when I was in school I uh, had an internship at a shipyard at Bath Ironworks and I did quality, quality control there and uh, now I'm doing work in uh, the area of flow accelerated corrosion engineering work I should say um, in flow accelerated corrosion and erosion for nuclear and fossil based power plants basically it's just um looking at pipe wall loss in power plants that utilize uh, or, you know, in uh, water systems that uh, have water at certain temperatures or uh, wet steam. So we uh, predict that predict that out at my company and just uh, try to mitigate it and prevent it and uh, do inspections on pipes and um, just try to prevent failures from occurring due to wall thinning. So now I'm here. <laughs> nice. Sounds... Uh very technological i am a biology nerd myself so uh i'm used to just like memorizing useless facts and talking about genetics and whatnot so what you do is probably much harder uh, no it's not that bad <laughs> but uh so uh okay so uh for those that are listening the reason why calling it spaceship earth is because earth is a spaceship as far as we know there is no other planet that can host us as a species and life for that matter. And we are trying to preserve this spaceship. And the term spaceship is kind of sciencey and technological. And we want to bring technology and science back to the environmental movement, which has been hijacked by wrongheaded ideologues that are not looking at actual data. So we uh, are going to talk about eco-modernism, and it is a philosophy on the environment. Matt, could you tell us a what you what your definition of eco-modernism is? Yeah, so thanks. So when we look at the history of environmentalism, there have fundamentally been two goals uh, overall. The first is to shrink the human footprint on nature and natural uh, 
forces. And the second is to harmonize with natural forces. So what eco-modernism essentially does is really tries to embrace the first goal to the fullest extent, even through the use of technology and really trying to intensify our usage of each, uh, or minimize our, our usage through things like agriculture, um, energy use, living in the big cities as opposed to being very spread out, and um, just uh, trying to really shrink that footprint through the use of modern means. But it also rejects the second goal, because what eco-modernism believes is that essentially when you try to harmonize with nature, essentially your per capita footprint goes up. And you're going to, so you're leaving a higher footprint on the natural world and you're leaving less room for nature. And I don't want to say that it's basically where you allocate room for nature exclusively and then just allocate room for people. It's not going to be a perfect world like that, but it tries to make it so that we uh, we uh, as humans can enjoy nature for being nature and just uh, let it let it essentially be like we designate areas for for use and resources and uh try to replace things um you know like instead of doing mining you try to go to recycling like uh, figuring out advanced recycling techniques to uh you know, reuse uh, different resources that we didn't think were possible you try to get more people on less land in cities. You try to use things like nuclear power that are very dense as opposed to biofuels, which have, or which are very dilute in terms of they, they'll take up a lot of land use. So it's kind of just, I would say it's environmentalism 2.0 in the sense that traditional environmentalism has basically seen people as this, you know, I don't want to say a cancerous tumor on the planet, but it hasn't, really accepted that humans are an integral part and what eco-modernism does is says look we're here there are going to be nine ten billion of us very soon we're not going anywhere we're not gonna recede back to nature go into caves or you know try and grow our own food it's like that's just not gonna happen unless something drastic hits the human race so it accepts that and it really tries to answer the question how do we do that while not harming the natural world so i, I think that's that's my understanding of it but um you know in 2015 the eco-modernist manifesto was actually written by 18 environmentalists including you know the key authors michael schellenberger ted Nord nordhaus at the breakthrough institute along with uh you know high stuart profile brand. and yeah stuart brand yeah stuart brand uh, arguably the godfather of environmentalism and uh so I do, I would definitely encourage people to read it when you can. It, it really talks about that spiritual connection with nature and just enjoying it and recognizing it for its beauty and just uh you can read it at ecomodernism.org all one word eco modernism. So uh listeners please check it out. It is uh my bible pretty much uh it's the closest thing to uh a a new school of thought in environmentalism that I, I can find. And uh, you brought up an interesting point. You talk about harmonizing with nature. Can you explain like the logical fallacy of that and really kind of what kind of hippie bullshit that actually is? Well, I don't want to call it. Hippie, 
No, no, you're good. <laughs> I don't want to call it necessarily hippie bullshit, but when you think about the resources that people use in their lives, and this is not just you know the food you eat, but the ind- the direct and indir- indirect resources we have to have, you know, because you, it's especially for a developed nation standard of living where you have access to clean water, clothes on your back, shelter, food, uh, resources for all the materials that go in your life. When you try to, I mean, you, you can definitely try to use less of it, but the problem is if you try to rely too much on nature instead of uh, trying to really intensify your living footprint, you're gonna that's gonna go up. So what I mean by that is, let's say that we all, you know, were forced to go back to an agrarian standard of living where we had to grow our own food on a farm, right? That land footprint would drastically increase in terms of we'd have to have to level more forests for agriculture, and really just shrink the amount of resources we use but that would have a har- a larger impact on the natural world because when you try so it, to answer your question when you try to harmonize with nature you essentially increase your footprint and um this was really seen when we before the, before the industrial revolution when we were growing our food in the uh in the united states for example so we had to clear huge swaths of forests just to raise cattle and grow crops. And uh, I don't want to make it all about food production because it's, it's definitely not that, but, you know, organic, uh, organic food, it can arguably take up more land than let's say genetically modified crops. So that's um, essentially it's ba- you're, you're not, you're avoiding, a tr- you're trying to leave more space for nature as opposed to, trying to harmonize with nature to do it because when you think about it they're going to be there are only 1 billion people on the planet who have access to a high standard of living and then there i think it's roughly 2 billion after that that have what's a, called an acceptable living standard but then there are a lot more that don't have like there are 1 billion people right now with access to no electricity at all and so you think about that those people are not going to have proper medical services they're not going to have proper health care or food or you know shelter so and they're reliant on the natural world like there are people about 1 billion who those 1 billion people burn wood and dung for their primary energy source and so that uh, instead of you know having to rely on electricity they're going into the natural world and they're you know chopping down trees you know for their fuel and so if you can that's a, an example of uh, relying on nature as opposed to more conventional sources and shrinking your footprint. Um, yeah. the, so, go ahead. The interesting part of ecobaronism is that it talks about decoupling, meaning instead of trying to have mm-hmm. everyone kind of just subsist off the land, which takes a lot of things from the land, especially if you don't have access to electricity, you have to burn wood and wood is very it's fairly dilute and so basically when you try to subsist off the land and harmonize with it you end up being more intrusive into it and the idea of eco-modernism is to basically leave nature to its own self give it a give it its own space and try to kind of cloister humans 
to, I don't know, like E.O. Wilson says, a half earth. Yeah, no, that that's a great way of putting it. I mean, that's, and I think that that's really, and this is a, you know, getting back to that question of harmonizing, I, I'm glad you brought up the word decoupling. When you think about it, what we've been trying to do, I mean, one of the tenants, uh, I think that, so right now, I think the environmentalist movement is a lot more focused on the second goal as opposed to the first, you know, they might not believe that. And you see this a lot with renewables. So to me, renewables have a, a key uh, enticement about them. And that's the fact that they're based off of, off of nature and natural forces. But the problem with that is, is that they're, you know, you suffer from three fundamental drawbacks that renewables have. And every renewable source arguably has at least one of these. Some, I would even say, have all three, but they can be very dilute. So, you know, as you look at a plant like Ivan Pa, the largest solar thermal plant in the United States, it's about 392 megawatts. It only has a capacity factor. I think, I think it goes up to 30% at most, but let me, uh, I step be, in what, there. let me sorry. Let me step in there really quick. I sure. pause that big ass mirror in the desert that has all those mirrors that focus light on this like stack that uh, runs a uh, heats water, runs a turbine, and generates electricity. And capacity factor for those who don't know is the uh, let's say your power plant has a capacity of sixty megawatts. A capacity factor is what percentage of those megawatts are usually on at any given time. So like, right. It's a, it's a ratio of actual energy output to the maximum theoretical potential over any given period of time. Right. Cool. Sorry. Yeah. Or, or, to, yeah. 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 No, no, that, that's good. No, I'm glad you did that. But yeah. So just let's compare that. So you, you've got a solar thermal, that solar thermal plant takes 3,500 acres of land just to get 392 megawatts of very intermittent power. Now let's compare that with something like a nuclear reactor, like a let's say a Holtex SMR-160, a new light water reactor design that's under development that's very small and compact. That's rated for 160 megawatts, but it only uses up four and a half acres of land. And you know, so you get three of those together and you've got a little shy of 15 acres, 480 megawatts for 15 acres. But on top of that, that runs 90 uh, over 90% of the time. So you're getting a lot more power, a lot more capacity for a lot less land. You're shrinking the human footprint on that land. And to top that all off, that plant, those plant new plants are actually rated for 80 years. Ivanpah is probably going to run, I mean, 30 years at best. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe 40, but bottom line is you're having a larger footprint on the natural world because they actually, so they built Ivanpah and I don't want to, you know, trash Ivanpah too much, but they built that plant in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And for those of you who don't know, that area is not just some wasteland of uh, sand and just dunes. It's, it was actually, it actually had a lot of biodiversity. I remember you and I, actually saw a presentation on it, Phil, where it was, I mean, we saw the amount of wildlife they had before that plant was built in a presentation. And then afterwards it was just decimated because to build that plant, but that was all, I mean, build that plant 
was designed or built really with the idea to reduce carbon emissions and and induce environmental impact but when you think about it it really it still had a large impact because you had alternatives that you could switch to that were a lot more dense a lot more reliable and required a lot less resources over the time of the plant and and you didn't go to it so that's and i would say one thing about that you said i mean again this is this show we aren't the most reverent and whatnot and you said uh not to shit on ivanpah i mean in my mind i i think we have to shit on ivanpah just my opinion or in my personal life i know people don't like it but they have to realize that this is this is not getting us anywhere i don't think and i do not think basically uh plowing down parts of the desert, large parts of the desert, just to get a little bit of concentrated solar energy makes any sense. And it's not its not even putting a dent in the massive amount of fossil fuels that we are using simply because fossil fuels are very dense. Uh, and you were talking about the first issue with maybe some renewables is is uh the oh yeah i got off track there uh, yep. sorry yeah and but actually all right, one... so lack of density is the yeah sorry yeah so I'll, I'll finish up with that so lack of density is the key one okay so that that's number one so it, it takes a lot of area compared to something like a thermal plant whether it be you know a fossil or a nuclear plant to or even you know geothermal or biomass to to get that same amount of of a area or, or power and and energy. The second issue is variability. Now this is really tied with wind and solar. You could also argue tidal, but the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. I mean these are very you know common things, but that does a lot of issues for energy supply our energy supply because our energy supply is right now built around the concept of using very dense, very reliable fuels. And so in a way, we're taking a huge step backwards with uh, trying to deal with these issues. And I've talked with people in my uh, local, I see New England, they operate the grid here in New England. And they've said, I mean, it's a huge issue dealing with them because essentially you have to continuously ramp up, up and down uh, gas plants. And you have to, it, it does not make their jobs any easier. And it, it, uh, it really complicates you know, just trying to meet reliability needs just to say that you're clean. Okay, so that that's that's a, a big issue. But the last thing I it's would not, say, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say it, it seems like if we if we had like a really extremely rational robot figuring all this stuff out, they would have been like, oh wait, we're just gonna toss aside, not necessarily toss aside, but but just not try to push too hard on wind and solar simply because it's variable. It's not on all the time. Uh, the our standard of living is supposed. It's not based on the weather events, and I think it's. Yep. You know that, that that's the way I think about it. So it seems like we would have you know thought about this a little bit harder. But now, but now you just hear, oh, they're just going to do Tesla batteries, you know, and uh, that's just another flaw. I think in the in, in, in yeah. the reasoning, you know. The, yeah, and that variability arguably leads you to have to build more wind and solar because essentially you're you know like a, a, a onshore wind 
offshore wind is, a, is definitely a bit better, but let's use onshore wind for an example. So the onshore wind capacity is about 34% in the U.S. Compare that with nuclear, and it's about 90%. So in order to get that same amount of or generation, in terms of the same amount of gigawatt hours each year, you essentially have to build out three times as much wind and solar. So that's three times as much capacity and three times as many resources compared to a standard plant. But on top of that, another issue that that goes in with the intermittency factor, so the fact that you have to overbuild capacity, but a lot of the times these resources don't last long. Like I think wind is definitely the worst at this because a wind turbine is only rated for about 25 years at best, and that's being really generous. Usually it's about 20 years. So every you know, let's just be generous and say 25 years, you're going to have to replace those turbines. And those things are not going to get recycled. And we're starting to see this issue now where essentially you have a lot of carbon fiber that can't be recycled that you just have to dump in landfills. So that's more imprint on the natural world. Yeah. And, um, but, if I, you know, I, and, but that variability, uh, sorry. Uh, well, the oh, key yeah. issue. Yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, uh, about those polymers that they use for the uh, wind blades. I was talking to someone that fabricates them here in Colorado, and they they deal with a lot of volatile uh, compounds that are quite toxic. And they are like, okay, well, this is worth it because we're you know going to decarbonize the grid this way. But it hasn't really turned out that way. But I was just going to say, like, yeah, the yeah the, the the way these things don't last as long as a well-built nuclear plant is, is, is a, it's, it's not, it, it, it has a waste footprint. They just don't appear and disappear, you know, but okay, go ahead. Though. No, 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 that, that's good. In fact, that actually, that's a bigger issue with solar right now. I remember about 10 years ago, a solar plant actually got raided in China. And I mean, again, this is China, the, the one of the most polluted areas, <laughs> countries in the world. And a bunch of villagers raided a solar plant because it was poisoning the water supply that they had. So it, it was, I mean, that's a huge issue with solar too. And disposal costs, I think one issue that these technologies are going to face is the fact that EPA has very, this is at least in the United States, EPA has very strict guidelines for getting rid of a lot of the heavy metals like lead, cadmium, uh, mercury. I mean, a lot of these things are found in certain renewable technologies and if utilities uh, don't dispose of this properly it's going to be a very big financial challenge for them so that that's just one side note there but finally there is the third challenge with renewables so thus far i just want to get through this you know we've talked about area intensity the variability but the third one and this is something i think that's overlooked quite a bit is they are very location intensive and you could argue that this actually applies to almost all of renewables. So certain renewables, like geothermal, my favorite renewable of all, wish we'd build a lot more geothermal plants, there are very few places you can do it. So you're not going to just build a geothermal plant anywhere. You're usually going to do it where the Earth's crust is thinnest, because that's where the economics really work out, because you're getting you know closer to the to the hot layer of the under the crust of the earth and extracting that heat and using it to produce energy same thing applies with hydro 
a lot of nations don't have hydro and one of the big arguments against hydro is that and the reason we can't rely on it for climate change is because in the developing nations where we've essentially you know they're the highest emitters we've really built hydro out to its full capacity so there really aren't a good place to do dams there is we can do smaller stuff but um you know that that's that's still a very big challenge and those are the two big reliable ones but you can apply that this last category i think also to wind and solar and things like tidal because you can't just a lot of the times the economics of these technologies has a lot of um challenges in the sense that you can't just build them anywhere like you're not going to build a wind farm in the southeast of the united states because the southeast of the united states has no no wind i mean it, all the good wind resources are from the dakotas down to texas and the surrounding states so that's wh and that's where most wind is getting produced just like th the best solar resources are in arizona like it makes really good sense to deploy solar in arizona S excuse me so this is a, I think a big challenge because certain countries are not going to have pragmatic renewables to do, um, uh, you know, all the way through. So the, I think it's those three, these uh, three challenges are the ones that have, or limitations that I should say that have really prevented us from making serious emissions reductions with renewables in terms, or allow, they have allowed renewables to really overtake the market and essentially scale to a significant point of fossil fuels because there and you know phil there was something interesting i read last year that really it didn't surprise me but it was definitely like disappointing because i never really thought about it i don't know if you know who roger pelkey uh jr is but he he actually i think oh yeah he's uh uh and he's in at csu at cu denver i mean cu colorado yeah no yeah, yeah right he's he's brilliant absolutely brilliant so he wrote an article about i mean basically how I think it was a, something about the Green New Deal and just how impragmatic it was, but he brought something up that really, like, it was disappointing that I didn't even think about it, but it, it's true. He looked on IEA. Most of the renewables that we've deployed over the last two get, decades, I, even before that, have not actually displaced fossil fuels. And we're talking globally in the primary energy scheme. Most of the renewables we have deployed, and keep in mind... For everyone listening that this is they're essentially a very small percentage we're talking like i i don't know the exact number but i know wind and solar are like three to four percent of total energy demand but most of them have not displaced fossil fuels they've just added to the mix so that's a very big challenge when you think about the or like just a very disappointing statistic when you think that we've got 30 years now to really make cuts in emissions we have to get to zero emissions by 2050 we have to essentially triple double or even quadruple energy use by the end of the century or i should say double by by 2050 so that means we have to replace the entire energy infrastructure we have because a lot of that even whether it's clean or not a lot of it is going to need to be decommissioned before 2050 so we have to rebuild that but then we have to build out new infrastructure for the countries that are coming online. And when you do the math, you just cannot practically do that with wind and solar. I mean, like I'm I'm a realist when it comes to energy use. And I'm gonna say this, Phil, I don't think that we're gonna reach twenty fifty targets. I, I just Well in, of course not. I in, in my mind, honestly, I'm like, we will it will be a stroke of God level like, you know, 
Yeah, I, I mean, miracle it's... level, uh, a miracle to get to zero emissions by twenty one hundred, and and I still think I have hope in my mind yeah. that if we can do that, we'll still we won't have a Venus uh, uh, Earth, but it will we will still be dealing with mass extinctions. And I, I don't like to be labeled the doomer, but uh, climate change is the real deal. This is this is an extinction level event, and we yeah. got to be super careful. Well, and, you know, I think that that's – I think we also just have to be pragmatic about it. I think that we can get to a reasonable reasonable level, and we're not going to die off. We're not going to, you know, face a complete disaster for humanity. Humanity will go on, but it is going to be – we are going to face new challenges in that time. But I will say – and this is where the optimist in me comes in – if we look to if we do this right and can get on the same team in terms of getting a cohesive plan together, then we can really, then, then I think we can, uh, we have a small shot to fixing this problem because we have to remember the big issue with carbon dioxide is once you put it in the biosphere, AKA, you know, you dig up a fossil fuel from the geosphere, then you burn it. And it adds in, it goes into the atmosphere, oceans. It's there. It's a carbon dioxide accumulates in the biosphere when you add it. So even if we cut off all fossil plants tomorrow, and, and you know, ended all emissions from not just electricity, but the prime, you know, the, the transportation sector and the industrial sector, they're going to be a complete nightmare to clean up. And then we, you know, did away with emissions like from things like cow farts. And all the other things that I'm not even thinking of, the CO2 is still going to be there. It's not going to go away. So after we get, you know, completely level off, and keep in mind we are still so far away from that, we're going to have to figure out a way to pull carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. And I mean, I think, you know, you hear Bill McKibben's 350.org. That's actually based on a target. 350.org is where you have a stable climate where essentially you have just enough carbon dioxide in the biosphere to reflect enough uh, or prevent enough heat from getting trapped and allow enough heat to, to leave the Earth's uh, atmosphere. And that's, it that's how it, the, it keeps it in the Goldilocks. Area. Exactly. It, it, it precisely. But you have to realize right now we're about 415 and that's been rising over the last few decades and it's not stopped. And even with COVID-19, and I, you know, I actually want to comment real quickly on COVID-19. I think it's a tragedy what COVID-19 has done to this country and the planet. But you have to think this is going to, by the end of the year, this is going to give us a very good reference point as to the bare minimum amount of energy you need. Because when you think of energy use, you're literally everything in our lives, and I think this has been one of the biggest flaws with the environmentalist movement has been just a denialism of the amount of energy we need in our in our daily lives. I mean, and the amount of energy footprint we have, everything we see, do, and touch is based on energy use. Okay, all the materials we have, all our services, literally everything that we ha have, everything we do has a footprint. And, you know, you think about it, whenever you buy a material or service, you're not buying some, you know, some random uh, you know, new iPod or or iPhone or you're, you're not uh, buying, a, you know, some massage 
at a parlor, you're literally buying energy use because a product or service is, a direct, is directly correlated to the amount of energy that makes it uh, possible. So in going back to COVID-19, everyone, we have not been staying at, I mean, we have not been going out and really getting those services. We've been really focused on only spending money on the things that are, uh, are key to survival. I mean, we, this year has been a reflection of what does survival look like? We, you know, food, healthcare, clean water, utilities. I mean, we've been very limited in our energy use because, and this is, this is really a reflection of what I think that new movie plan of the humans was, was about was, oh, we have to like drastically reduce the, you know, are there are too many people and we're all doing too much it's like okay this is a great reflection of that by the end of this year we're going to get a very good idea of how much energy is required for bare minimum living and no yeah, one's going to want you yeah, go ahead oh i just wanted to say something about that um so since the dawn of the industrial revolution and really the you know implementing the philosophy of capitalism <laughs> which i'm a capitalist by the way but mm -hmm. one of the key ingredients to make it work is energy that is that it's because it's it allows us to turn scarcity into abundance by using energy to do the work for us and to, to well that said. you need and to do that you need lots of energy to do it because people are not going to use horses and their bare hands to do shit they're going to use you know steam engines not, not steam engines whatever we use now, hydraulic lifts and whatnot, mechanical muscles. You need energy to do that. And the problem is that right now our energy is directly tied to fossil fuel fossil fuel use. In fact, if you look at graphs and stuff, if you look at uh, the increased economic, uh, you know, wealth per capita of a nation, it directly correlates with how much energy you use. It's a it's a crazy direct correlation. And uh, and then it, based on how much energy you use, that's directly correlated to increased carbon dioxide emissions. So this is a, I, th I think my friend in Australia, Ben Hurd, said this. Yeah, I know about it. Yeah, yeah. He was like. Love Ben. <laughs> yeah, it was like, we have this remarkable like increase in human prosperity globally tied to a very terrible side effect of carbon pollution and it does not need to be that way we can power everything with an alternate source of power and just to get back kind of on tr on track here with uh, our talking points this is why we a lot of eco-modernists don't shut up about nuclear power it it, it it's like I'm it's not, the foundation for the whole thing right right because it allows us to do whatever we want with as much energy as we want forever, forever. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's what allows, you know, I, I thank God. I was like, if you believe in God, I don't, you know, I'm more agnostic, but <laughs> thank, thank God uranium and thorium exists in high enough concentrations on the earth's surface, because that gave us a way out of this this carbon trap that we're in and when people say oh we just need to decrease you know our our e economy and stuff 
that's not going to work. That will keep people in poverty. And what I'm worried about is climate change or energy austerity will simply stall out any economic growth because, you know, things that you build, it will just get destroyed. Uh, but that's that's my opinion. Yeah, no, well, you know, I, I want to, you said a lot there and it, it was extremely good, but there was one thing I wanted to touch on. So Hans Rowling, who was a uh, yeah, Swedish pro- Rosalind, excuse me. It, you know, he, you know who he is. But Swedish professor. He uh, passed away a year or two ago, but and he was absolutely brilliant. He gave a great TED talk on how revolutionary the washing machine was, because his grandmother, and like a lot of women in the developing world today who have access to no electricity, would, would and do, wash clothes by hand, where they would literally go out gather water, spend hours just gathering water, heating it, and then washing clothes by hand. And this is a huge, when you think about it, I, I mean, it's something that we take for granted so much in terms of just being able to wash your clothes because it's something that can be done in the background while we are doing other things like reading or you know, getting an education or doing you know minute tasks. But it's, when you think about washing clothes, it is the most, unproductive task possible because there's nothing gained from it there's nothing new productive of it it's like but if you're able to have a machine do that and have energy do you know power that machine you're freeing up more time and it's in the developing world and this is one of the issues i've had with people who wants to use less energy it's like do you really want to wash your own clothes i mean do you really want to tell people that they have to wash their own clothes and just grow all their own food and, you know, abandon their current lives. I mean, it's a very seductive, you know, narrative that I think is not appropriate. But the thing that, um, you know, I like how you you brought up nuclear in that, in what Ben said, in the sense that nuclear, when you think about it, is really at the core of eco-modernism, or I, I would at least argue the core of eco-modernism because... It is the most dense energy source on the planet. There is nothing that comes closer to fission or fusion in terms of just the density per unit of area or molecule. It's um, like a, a uranium atom is a million times as energy dense as a fossil fuel atom in terms of the, there's nothing that goes between fission or fusion. It, it is... It's such a a dramatic leap that it's like almost hard to get your your mind around it. But because squared exactly squared, yep. Energy uh, times uh, mass times uh, or energy equals mass times the speed of light. Exactly. And and it's big um, ass big ass numbers, folks. It's even bigger. So you're getting an extremely large amount of energy from such a small amount of mass, and that's so critical for from an environmentalist standpoint. That is the Goldilocks of, or just, uh, the, you know, what you're shooting it's for. Panacea. Go ahead. It's the panacea or how pa- you say the word. It, it, it is, in, in my opinion, I would say people are just like, oh, there's no silver bullet to climate change. It's just like, true. It's not made out of silver. It's made out of uranium. <laughs> but that that is the, that is the best way we have right now to shoot this beast in the head. 
and 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 not screw you know our lives and the lives of plants and animals you know yeah no and i think that that's the the critical thing with uranium and thorium uh, you know we for those listening we we use uranium now but thorium is pretty much the same energy density yeah you're getting such an enormous amount of energy for such a smaller amount of mass so you're not invading too as much into the natural world and there's a strong possibility that we may actually be able to someday eliminate our intrusion into the natural world because you let like let's look at uh you know actually phil let's let's talk about let's get into nuclear a bit because i think that this is this is the the key for uh from an environmental standpoint it's so the key thing uh, the that makes nuclear so special is the fact that you are it's argued so arguably the best source of baseload i mean or i should say dispatchable energy source we have aka it's on demand when we want it it's mainly used 24 hours a day seven days a week at full power but we can load follow and some countries do do that but to top that all off is the fact that it's such a compact source of energy and so you know you look at a light wire reactor which I, I hate saying this, you know, it, it it will beat out every other energy source on the planet, but it's terrible when it comes to using energy uranium's full value. It only uses about yep. one half of 1% of the energy value in mined uranium, so, right? So just, so just so everyone knows, nuclear power is a, like 20% of our electricity decreasing because I keep closing down plants because people are stupid, but it is, it even the reactors we have today are still shit to what we could build and it's 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 almost like once you go down this rabbit hole, you start realizing, dang, this all sounds too good to be true, but it's actually not. But sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're you're fine. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to. I definitely don't want to call the current fleet shit. It, it is fantastic. It has served us so well, and we're gonna keep building LWRs as we should. Yeah. But the the big challenge right now is that I would argue that LWRs have is the fact that they are using such an insignificant fraction of the energy that's in mined right. uranium yeah so it's like you could so you look at one pellet of uranium which is probably the size of a fingertip it's the equivalent to one ton of the energy equivalent and this is for a light water reactor of one ton of coal three barrels of oil or seventeen thousand cubic feet of natural gas this is you know one pellet and you put a whole hundreds of these things into a fuel bundle and they that fuel bundle goes into a reactor and generates heat and um you know that heat eventually goes into steam spins a turbine get energy but when you look at uranium at this type of reactor rather it uses such a small percentage of that fuel and it, it's still better than everything else and that's why i think we should keep build, building them but when you look at the energy that's left and this is really what we think of as waste used fuel it's not waste. unused fuel. Unused fuel. Exactly. I mean, yeah. well, I'm just saying the term for everyone who doesn't know right. about it. So you look at all the dry casks in this country. I mean, so when we go, when we start out with uh, mined uranium, we have to, for a light wire reactor, we have to enrich it to about three to four percent. And where basically we separate out, there are two isotopes of uranium in natural ore, technically three, but there are two primary ones, U-235. That's the fissile isotope, and then U-238, that's the fertile. So the fissile is the isotope that really is 
when means that, that when you hit it with a neutron, it's going to split, and that fission, aka fissile, is going to generate heat. And that heat is what's used to, essentially is the energy source. Then there's the fertile. Now the fertile can be used, but you have to you have to turn it into a fissile isotope. In this case, uranium two thirty eight, and convert yeah, that so, to plutonium. But go ahead. Yeah, so that that would be thorium. So people people hear a lot about thorium reactors, and they're quite popular because people are afraid of the word uranium, which really doesn't make any sense because all you're doing with thorium is it's close in you know on the periodic table to uh, uranium two thirty five, which is yeah. what he said fissile. Uh, so what you do is you just you you take a neutron and you throw it at the thorium, which is all the same isotope when you pull it out of the ground, and yep. it turns it into uh, with a few other steps. It basically absorbs the neutron and then eventually turns into uranium two thirty five, which you uh, two thirty three, yep, two thirty three, which is another fissile or splittable. So all fertile means is it's not splittable yet, but you can make it splittable if you basically alter it a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the key thing. So when we look at that fuel uh, that comes out of a light water reactor, nine, I mean, 96% of it technically, or over 96% of it technically is still usable. Like, aka, if we can, it's mostly still uranium-238. So we could take that, turn it into new fuel using a fast reactor and a breeder reactor, which I will admit have not been a commercial success for a wide variety of reasons, but can be. And when you think about it, you're essentially, you'd get, with the current used fuel we have, 24 times out of what we've already gotten in, from our energy use. So, you know, we get 20% of our electricity from nuclear, multiply that by 24, and you'll you'll get what we could get out of it if we use a fast reactor and or breeder reactor. But um, th that also doesn't include the depleted uranium. So when you do the enrichment process where you have to essentially separate out a lot of the U-238, you're left with depleted uranium, which is almost pure U-238. That's used in things like tank armor and armor-piercing rounds by the, the military, but um, it could potentially be turned into fuel as well. And um, when you add up the numbers in terms of how long this stuff could last, uh, we're talking hundreds even thousands of years and this is just of off of what we've already mined and that's what yeah. makes it so critical is the fact that if we were to convert to reactors that could use this material we could i don't want to say eliminate uranium mining because i think like right now we're doing a mostly uranium mining because it's, it's cheaper cheap. than just reprocessing right but yeah, there's lots of uranium right but it's still you're still able to get an enormous amount of energy out of such a small mass and have a less intrusion. And you have to remember, you know, Phil, these plants are going to last. I mean, I, I work in this, in the air, in this sector and they were originally rated for 40 years, but everyone's seeing that now that that was complete bullshit because I, I mean, <laughs> these, I mean things these things could... are big hunks of like, like really, if we were to build out the current reactors that we have now, the main ingredient is simply steel and concrete to to contain yeah. and, nuclear grade and concrete, if, right? Right, right. And so we don't have to keep digging up a fuel. We don't have to keep digging up metals for the special metals for the like wind and solar sector, which is you know full of a lot of very like niche 
materials, uh, all we need to do is use the the unearthed radioisotopes, which are the radioactive things that we can use as fuel potentially. All we need to do is 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 reprocess those, and we could run society for a uh, hundred years at least without having to rebuild it compared yeah. to like 30 years for for wind turbines like once you start learning about this like it, it, it's what frustrates me the most because it feels like i've been lied to no i i mean it's yeah i i don't want to say you know what we've been lied to about renewables but there yeah that's correct so one thing about reprocessing so we actually could reprocess now in terms of take take the used fuel after it's come out of the reactor and been out for a few years, we can reprocess that once for a light wire reactor. That's essentially where we separate out the plutonium and the U-238 and we turn into mocks. And that the French do that, the Japanese did do that when they had nuclear a lot. A, a bunch of other countries, like I think Russia does it too. And so that mox, gets you in... Mox means mo mixed oxide, like uranium correct. oxide. Yep. Yep, and so that, there's that. Um, but you can only do that once with the current generation because it does drastically reduce the, the waste stream, but you've used up all the key fissile isotopes. So you, that's where you need a breeder reactor is to make more fissile or at least enough new fissile to break even. So that's there. there's that. But um, what was I going to say about this? But yeah, no, I, I mean, but that that's the critical piece with it from an environmental standpoint is you're getting such an enormous amount of energy for some, such a small footprint. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the fear or the apprehension to use nuclear has come out of the fear of radiation and nuclear pro proliferation. I mean, you know, I look at a lot of the anti-nuclear uh, crowd and I basically see that their big fear is radiation. That's this big boogie, boogeyman that is just uh, it, it. That's just this unknown force because it's something that you can't you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't touch it necessarily. It's just there, but it, it's frustrating to me because and it can fuck you up really badly in the wrong applications or if, if there's a really bad reactor design that falls apart like Chernobyl. Chernobyl is should be considered a shit Russian mulligan of a reactor design that we don't really we've all nope. adapted to not be that way anymore. Well, I don't want to say I will actually I do actually want to comment on Chernobyl in a bit, but you know, I'll just do it now. So the <laughs> Chernobyl actually and so that's a, that's the thing. You think of you know people they'll think of point to accidents like Chernobyl or Fukushima. But let's actually look at those accents. Now, I'm going to state for the record, those re those accents should not have happened for a wide variety of reasons. But we should keep them, and we should not ignore them at all. In fact, we should definitely really learn from them and keep them under a microscope big time. But, and I'm going to use the word but, we have to keep them into perspective. So, the worst accident by far was Chernobyl. There, There is nothing that will be Chernobyl. I mean, Chernobyl was... I, 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 yeah, no, it really, I mean, the, the, the problem with that that whole thing was it, it wasn't even a reactor that was meant to make power. It was meant it was meant to make plutonium for bombs. Yep. Like, that was the big problem with it. But it was poor design. It was very cheap. 
the safety was there was no containment structure. The safety was not a priority for the Soviets at the time. But to keep that into context, so there are four reactors on site at Chernobyl. Reactor number four was the one that failed. And you know, they've they've actually just finished a huge cofferdam over it. It's the largest man-made structure, movable man-made structure on the planet in history. It's unreal if you've you guys have uh, never seen it, but it's not to just to shield it. It's basically to dismantle that de- to decommit and, fully and decommission it, correct. Yep. There were three other units on site though. So the accident happened in nineteen eighty six. Those three units went on operating till 1995 it, like just think about that so we had one failure at, a, at the plant but the other three units kept going i mean that's like n- name another in- large-scale industrial accent that will do that but here's the key fact with chernobyl that i think everyone needs to understand and this is this is a, where i want to get into to a discussion about uh using primary sources According to the United Nations reports, and these are reports were produced by over half a dozen UN organizations, and they were signed off by the governments of Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, which was a massive, massive deal because those three countries were the most affected. There were a lot of implications. Uh, thousands of people had to be evacuated. You know, iodine, people definitely got cancers, but they were all treatable, uh, mainly with iodine. Roughly only 56 people died from that accident, and the estimates are that maybe 4,000 people will die from cancer later on. Prematurely, prematurely. Exactly. I mean that. Now that that's not that's not good. I'm not gonna say that that's like something you can brush away, but when you compare that to every other the deaths per terawatt hour compared to every other energy source and you include the other nuclear accidents which have not killed people people can debate me on that i don't don't care nuclear comes out on top as being the safest source because the biggest killer by far and it kills people on a daily basis from energy related sources and this goes back all the way to burning wooden dung to you know then coal and all the energy accidents related after that is air pollution Air pollution just in the United States alone kills about 13,000 people. And globally, I think it's 3 million people die from fossil fuel related accidents. I think, and I think wooden dung tops it all off with about 4 million people from air, indoor air pollution each year. Um, yeah, it's but like smoking in, cigarettes. Yeah, exactly. And even before that, it's like, but I mean, the key thing is, and access to no energy at all is the big killer. I mean, in any energy-related death, you don't have access to energy, then you're you're dead. You're, you don't you're, have clean, you're fucked. You don't, yeah, you don't have clean water. You don't have light. You know, sanitation. I mean, food. Exactly. Uh, yeah, all the fundamentals that we're yep. looking to towards. But so Chernobyl was should not have happened. But there's a lot of implicate i mean i think that is one of the, you cannot just look to chernobyl and say this bad reactor design reflects all nuclear power on the planet it is yep. completely absurd but even if you did even if you did let's look at what pripyat is right now pripyat for those of you who don't know is the town um where chernobyl is located pripyat essentially has become a wildlife preserve i mean when you really think about it 
when people left the whole area, nature essentially came back in. There's, I don't know if you've ever seen this documentary, Phil, but there was a great documentary called uh, Radioactive Wolves. I think it was by it was by Nova, Nova or PBS, and they essentially looked at the ecological impacts of Chernobyl and what happened. And, you know, it definitely flushed people out for a whole wide variety of reasons, but wild animals actually, you know, ended up coming back in, particularly wolves, because about, I think it was 70 years, you know, during the 1910s, wolves were hunted to, to extinction in that area because, you know, hunters and poachers and uh, all, you know, people essentially. But what ended up happening with when Chernobyl had occurred is, animals started to come back in. Like, I didn't know until I watched that documentary that there was, there are still wild horses on the planet. I mean, can you believe that? Like, that's like, they're boar, uh, I mean, it's, just it's everything. with wildlife, and it, it goes to show that if you leave nature alone, and potentially people, we live in cities and use nuclear power and try to just be as intensive with what we already have as possible, recycling, using energy, uh, leaving nature alone, it, it, it's what it's what it wants right now. It, it's I'm not saying banish ourselves from, you know, the the globe, but it just goes to show that mm-hmm. living within nature is a really bad. It, it's really bad for plants and animals, and uh, it's it, it's it's just interesting how it's become a intense like thriving wildlife preserve just because. You know the the fear of radiation is so strong to keep people out, and the radiation levels aren't you know as deadly as people would have you believe. Right, and uh, I mean I I should also note I mean right now the biggest issue that's ha- occurred in Pripyat because I actually had a friend who went went to Pripyat is looters because the, I think it was around 2011 or it was in the 2010s they actually opened Pripyat to tourism where people could literally just come in and you know look around and do whatever the hell they wanted. But um, a lot of people will leave their trash everywhere and just like screw around, and it's I mean that that is the biggest problem for that area is uh just people essentially dumping junk, and um I shouldn't say that there also I think that there are one in six animals do have birth defects. I I don't know the source on that, but I I think that that is I I will state that for the record. But um I so. But the, the the bottom line is the ecological effects have not been nearly as bad, and I think the big problem is is that we conflated radiation with with getting cancer, and because cancer is the the biggest killer in the modernized world, and so that's why everyone's afraid of it. But it's because we're so old that we die of literally cell exhaustion or cell mistakes, which is cancer. Yeah, I, I mean it's, and that's what. It, it, has been argued to accelerate cancer but the bottom line is i mean we're exposed to radiation all the time like i don't know if you know this off the top of your head but denver especially like you know colorado in general and the whole midwestern states get the people who live there get such larger amounts of background radiation just from being at higher elevations and having granite in the rocks i mean it's like we have lots of clay here and in Colorado, we actually have an issue with some older houses that get radon, basically uranium and other radioactive isotopes in naturally occurring in brick decay and turn into radon. 
and the wow. radon like slowly settles in the bottom of basements uh, just because of the brick. And we are in Denver where I live, we're we're just so high that yeah, we're getting we're getting zapped. And it's not people need to realize that the idea that any any amount of radi- radiation will lead to a increase in cancer is not very true. They've actually found out that uh, you need to have a threshold. So basically, you have to reach a certain limit before your your cells can't take it, basically. Right. And well, then that's the theory of radiation hormesis. And this is one thing I know that the U.S. government is actually looking into and doing research right now. Because so the idea that all radiation is bad came out of a terrible, terrible study called the linear no threshold model. And I forget I forget who the guy's name was, but basically he said – you know, there we know for a fact that high levels of radiation will cause cancer and that, you know, you will get certain health effects because of that. What we are not sure of is the lower levels. Because it's so hard to tell just from because we're exposed to radiation all the time. It's like you think that we we get most of our radiation from things like X rays and you know, C T scans and um just artificial radiation, I should say, but most of it is not actually, it's not from man-made sources or even, you know, nuclear power. Most of it is from natural sources. So background radiation is the the big one. I would argue rocks and grant are the next uh, big one. And uh, yeah, just, uh, just like most of it, I don't know if you can actually look this up, but just, the sources of radiation do not come from man-made. Most of it does not come from man-made sources. And it doesn't, there is no difference in the effect on radiation from man-made sources or natural sources. I mean, the, the do, if the dose is the same, the effect is going to be the same. But Are you saying that the laws of physics are the same everywhere? Yeah, <laughs> smart ass. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's, yeah, essentially. I mean, but that's the key that's a key factor is the fact that we are, I mean, it's not, there's going to be no difference. And this is, this is one of the reasons I, I think that nuclear plants should not have to abide by such, you know, but I'm sorry, I'm getting off track. Let's look at the linear no threshold model essentially said we, all radiation is bad, that there is no threshold that if you get exposed to any of it at all, it's going to have, negative health effects that are just going to build up over time. That's not true. I mean, that is just flat out absurd bullshit. Because when you look back in time, I mean, life has teamed on Earth in radioactive environments. I mean, if, and, you know, I, I actually make the funny case, if you got in a time machine and went back far enough and got, you know, got out, or I should say, You'd probably be dead within minutes in certain times because radiation levels were so much higher on Earth back, you know, millions of years ago that, like, our bodies would not be able to handle that much. But life still thrived, like dinosaurs and, um, sorry, sorry, Phil. Damn you, we're going to throw the whole thing out now. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, life uh, would just be uh, thriving. I mean, it, it was still thriving. And so the same thing happens now. Our bodies are able to repair damage against radiation. And 
there's another thesis that's the exact opposite of the linear no threshold model that's called radiation hormesis. And essentially, it states the exact opposite of the LNT in that there is a threshold, but below that threshold, radiation is actually beneficial. Okay, and I like to compare it. I, I think this is the true, I think this is what's true and what a lot of special interest groups have been trying to ignore for God knows what reason, that you know, our bodies have repair mechanisms that, you know, let's say you're going to a gym, right? What are you doing? You're intentionally damaging your muscles. Why? So that they'll repair themselves and grow stronger over time. Well, the same thing applies to radiation. If you don't get enough exposure to radiation at all, then your body isn't going to learn how to deal with the certain levels of radiation. And it's just going to, it's going to have very negative consequences. And so I, you know, I've always wondered like what the, uh, the rates of radiation are with in States like, like yours with a higher background levels, because I mean, the rates of cancer, I think that would be a very telling story is, is there truly a, a relationship between background levels of radiation and cancer but the the only radiation that really causes an increase in cancer is the sun so when people say oh i have i've heard this one uh when a when there's a solar spill it's called a nice day or like you know it's not going to kill you i'm just like actually the sun is more deadly than nuclear power by a long shot like yeah. just, be, just being up too too high and not being you know protected by atmosphere you, you get zapped and it's just part of living in the universe but uh uh but yeah but, like I, yeah. I i know like uh when you, it's like hormesis so basically your body can be a little bit stimulated by ionizing radiation because it causes your cell machinery to repair itself and you it's also the same thing you do in like intermittent fasting like when you intermittent fast your right. body recycle its damage exactly. and and it's uh and, and if anything like working out probably uh releases more ionizing damage than you know any sort of radiation because your muscle cells tear apart and you know there's a lot of free radicals in your mitochondria that uh can escape into the cytoplasm so it's it, it's it, you're your body's meant to do a, a certain basal level of repair and uh, small amounts of background radiation. Just, you know, it's, it's how we evolved. We've evolved to handle it. So to, to say that no amount of radiation is safe is, it, it is nonsense because we evolved to handle it. So, well, you know. I, I, th I think it's not only nonsense. I think it's dangerous because I actually called up a, Edward Calvary's professor, I should say, Dr. Edward Calvary's at the University of Massachusetts Samhurst, and he, he and I shot the shit for about 30 minutes. I mean, brilliant, brilliant guy. I would argue the world's leading expert on radiation hormesis. He And he even said, I mean, I've been asked to be the head of the EPA by an administration that I, I will, won't name, but <laughs> the um, I called him up because I wanted to ask him a, you know, a few simple questions, but the key one was... If you applied the same radiation standards that nuclear plants have to deal with, because they have to, like, they have very, very strict radi radiation limits that I think are 
completely absurd. Would you have to essentially evacuate places like Denver, Colorado, you know, and the commercial jet airline industry and um, ban certain kinds of food that have naturally occurring radiation levels in them? And, and I, the, the main question was around, you know, places in higher, with higher elevation like Denver. And he was like, yeah, probably. So just think about that. It's like we would have to uh, – we have this double standard right now. I mean, where we're we are allowing so much, and not even just uh, the things I just mentioned, but fossil fuel plants as well have a big issue. Where you know, even the, a clean coal plant can still release radioactive particles when they when when they uh, burn burn their fuel. Yeah, it's coal like, ash. Exactly, coal ash or fly ash, I think is what it's called. It's correct. It's it, it's full of heavy metals, toxins, mercury, lead, like what, like freaking. Even, even uranium and thorium. Uh, we'll uranium say, I'll and say thorium. <laughs> well, which is which aren't actually as dangerous of mes- metals as some. Like I, I've heard, like if you can find naturally occurring, occurring uranium and isolate the metal, you can hold it in your hand and not really get harmed from it unless you like lick it or powder it and breathe it in. You know, so. Uh, but but that's the problem with like coal ash is it's powderized, just deadly toxin. And, and yeah, it is a total double standard when it comes to, you know, the regulations nuclear power has to abide by when literally the fossil fuel industry gets away with murder. And I think that that is one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in the industrial world that I mean, that I've ever seen. Well, let's be careful with that comment, though, Phil. I will say this. You know, you, you go to, I, I've worked at a lot of these fossil plants because my, my work is just not, it's not limited to nuclear, even though lim, nuclear has the most, uh, the most regulations. But we have to remember that fossil plants mostly are run by utilities and those utilities own renewables, they own nuclear, they own a wide variety of resources. But on top of that, it's like, we're, we have to remember the good that they are doing. Now, I think... I agree with you that they should be held accountable for when they they add pollution to the air and that does cause deaths. But a lot of that is due to, sorry, I, I think we have to recognize that a lot of that is not intentional. I mean, a lot of that is, I mean, them meeting demand for electricity and them meeting just energy demands. So the critical thing I think, though, is how do we and this goes back to really shrinking our footprint how do we shrink our footprint while maintaining civilization that's and that's the ultimate question and goal of eco-modernism is to really get through that and because you have the great benefits of fossil fuels are that they're dense they're abundant and they're cheap but the key thing is they're not clean and even if you you know you scrub out all the shit uh, that's not CO2, you still got the CO2, which is not usually does not have economic benefits to taking out. So I think we uh, you know just uh, just think about that though, because it's like you, know, you go to these fossil plants, and most of the people that work there are great people. They're not just these bad actors who are trying to poison the planet or you know. Uh, well, uh, well to, I, I I guess it comes to, like to the environmental sure. activists that are so. Uh... Like like when Indian Point, Indian Point's a plant uh, north of New York City, uh, they already closed down a unit because they cited like levels of this stuff called tritium, 
which is a very naturally occurring hydrogen isotope. Isotope. Such and they were and they were, and they were measuring it in like picocuries. For those that don't know how small a pico is, it's like to the negative fucking twelve. Well, that's even an angstrom. It's even less than that. It's like so such a small amount that's just so nothing. I mean, it's like the radiation standards for nuclear are so intense, and I get why. I get why nuclear needs more regulation than some other sources of power, but it, it it's just it's like it's like okay, we let's try to have some regulations that are pretty much fair for mostly everybody, uh, and. It's like nuclear power. If there's at all any sort of instance of anything going wrong, it is a like national news story. Yeah. Yeah. When I mean, it's, it's, and that's just a random day from a fossil generating plant. And I'm not saying the operators and the utilities are bad people, but definitely the, I, I put more of the blame to the extractors of this fossil fuel industry. And that's why I'm a big, that's fair. I'm not, and that's why I'm a big, advocate of a carbon fee and dividend which would charge people for uh extracting this stuff based on how much carbon dioxide it would throw in the air after that but that that's all i'm saying i'm not i know they're just meeting demand and a lot of i'm just saying a lot of the environmental activists don't understand that and well, and it's just it's it, 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 if more people knew about it and the truth and did not repeat the you know old-fashioned talking points they would that that's what that's what all these like young climate activists would be demanding is more nukes. Well, and that's honestly, I think that you just hit on, hit on a very good point there, and I, I think that this has been the fundamental issue with the mainstream environmentalist movement is that they're not pushing for solutions that are based on pragmatic. They're going to practically work or you know solve the issues. They're pushing for solutions that. Are coherent with their ideological rhetoric and their their views of the way the world should be and not how it real really just should be you know what i mean i mean this is so and, and this is this goes back to this second goal of traditional environmental environmentalism which is basically to harmonize with natural forces it's like the push towards wind and solar anyone could look at a graph of you know energy usage over the last 30 years and see that renewables have done little next to nothing to make a dent in carbon emissions. I mean, they've, anyone they've, with, they've, yeah, they've anyone only, in the right mind, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. They've only slowed down the increase tiny bits of fossil fuel yeah. growth. Correct. So uh, yeah, not, not fair. But it's like anyone could look at a graph like that and come to that conclusion very easily. And frankly, if they couldn't, then we'd have is big issues. But that's why I don't think they want to give up this uh, relative narrative of trying to push. In a way, I think they've hijacked the climate argument in terms of to try and get this. They see climate change more as an opportunity to push through their ideological agenda on the planet as opposed to fixing the problem. And this is, uh, and that's uh, the issue with with nuclear. It's like, to them, they don't want to just replace Peter with Paul. They want to have a revolution. They want to have extraordinary change. And you see this in things like the Green New Deal. Yep. Like the Green New yep. Deal has universal health care for all, like equity, and yes. oh, it's like it, it does not focus on carbon emissions. And it's like that's why it costs so in the trillions of dollars. It's not practical. But it's like just getting right. back to this. 
the key issue in the environmentalist movement is that they have not recognized the fundamental fact that they're not doing one key goal, which is meeting demand. They are pushing for options that are not going to do that. Hell, and hell. So, you know what I was going to say is I've I've talked to some diehard communists and they even think it's bullshit because they're like, wait a second. Part of like a communist revolution was to increase the material living standards of the working class. But I mean, their that's systems failed, yeah. failed. But but no, like I've met some very like hardcore Marxists and, and, and they think, no, degrow the economy. We want to give people. Like communism is still based in in hardcore industry, you know, and it's like it's like a and but then you have the people that are more like, oh, we call ourselves socialists, but we're going to basically wreck the energy system, make it a lot more expensive and don't believe what you hear in the news, people. And I know I sound like I'm crazy, but it's just the way that they spin it and the way that they talk about it is journalistic malpractice. But. Renewables are not cheaper than fossil fuels. No. I don't care whoever says it. It they, they they use things like oh per capacity, which is just how much potential they could produce, and they're like oh the capacity Levelized of this. cost of electricity too. It's yeah yeah it, it gets very complicated. Like that's another whole another episode about energy economics, but uh, which is very very complicated. And a lot of people don't know what the hell they're talking about, and I can't I, blame them. No, I, I've, I'm not going to try even act like I know everything about it. It's still, right. it's so, it's so absurd. I mean, but you know, it, to that point, it's like, well, I, I, let me just, sorry, let me just wrap up this one thing. So, I, I think that that's the key reason we have also not switched over or off of fossil fuels is because when push comes to shove, if it comes down to us using a dirty energy that keeps little Sally on life support at a hospital or clean energy that's unreliable that doesn't keep little sally alive on life support we're picking the dirty energy option every single time this is not negotiable this is not a, a, a fucking debate this is a fact plain and simple and so we need that large scale the thing that will produce not just electricity but high temperature process heat for industry transportation fuels whatever transportation option we have different materials you know concrete lead steel you name it 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 all comes down to energy but i i'm sorry you had to what were you saying in terms of the um if renewables not oh you said economics and cost one thing i wanted to add to that and i love michael came up with this term i mean same wind and yeah, excuse me. Uh, yeah, um, I, I like to call him Michael because I, you know, I, I love Michael. But <laughs> basically, he, this guy who we're talking about is nuclear Jesus, Michael Schellenberger. Yeah, I, I know him because I, I worked under him in, in 2015. But um, Michael has this great term where, and again, I don't want to say renewables are useless completely, uh, but essentially saying that things like wind and solar, the fact that they're going to get so cheap to the point where energy is going to be free is nonsense because energy is a service, not a commodity. It's like saying that the price of corn and wheat is going to get so cheap to practically free that electricity prices are, or, you know, or sorry, restaurant prices are going to get free. And that's not true at all. Right. You have right. so much more that goes into serving food at a restaurant than just 
you know, the, the 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 ingredients itself, the food well, itself. It's, and, and it's just like a logical fallacy because they're like, um, oh, it, it's free. Uh, last time I checked, grain is free. The sun is free. Metal in the earth is free. What capitalism and, industri- and industrialism and even, you know, communism, you know, any, any industrialism, uh, you have to turn nature into something that's usable. And yes, it's all technically free. So it's just a... It's a, I don't know, but it's, it's it's really hard to get people to to question the idea of free because in economics, any sort of economics, nothing is free. There's always cost benefit, supply and demand, uh, scarcity versus abundance. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, and I think that's why a lot of the environmental movement, it they just get it conceptually wrong, which is unfortunate. And it's, you know, you know, and. Yeah, I will say one thing. I, you know, we, we we've been crapping on the movement a lot, but I I do want to give them some credit where it's absolutely due because it, it really is due. We should be thanking the environmentalist movement for cleaning up our air and water. I mean, that I think that was and back our natural habitats. Sorry, what? Yeah, like back in the day, like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. Well, you know, yeah, like I mean, Earth, I think Earth Day, looking at the Earth from the moon, people were just like. Oh shit! Let's protect this shit, and and, and to, yeah, I mean, I I, to, the, I I totally get it. The 2070s, I mean, arguably, I mean, so for those of you who don't know this, Richard Nixon was the one who created the EPA. Okay, I mean, you know, this is <laughs> we never expected that from um that that was one of his big achievements, but that it was. But I would argue it was really because he was pressured into to making the EPA. And I mean, that is a, the foundation of the EPA is what really did all of those fundamental things that the environmentalist movement deserves enormous credit for and that there are still here today. I mean, we thousands of lives, I mean, I might even say it, millions of lives have been improved and probably saved because of those things that were put into place. But I think what yeah, we're. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, so I just, I, I mean, you know, we've been crap no, no, no. on, and 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 yeah. So like, when I crap on the environmental movement, I'm talking about the modern kind of anti-human, anti-progress, uh, uh, I call climate it, yeah. movement even Ma- mainstream movement. Yeah, but it's co-opted a lot of the radical social justice instead of the oh, common Christ, goal yeah. of just yeah, the common goal of just making the earth safer for us and animals and plants and. You know, because that's why this anti-human part, I think, is is so bad is because there's a humanist argument to protecting nature. Like, you don't have to be like, oh, humans are bad and nature is good. You can be like, both humans and nature are good. And uh, to, to see humanity as a virus is a very bad way to think about it. And people act like we, we've just started to despoil the earth. But that's been part of our, you know, pre-modern history is... We, we've homo sapiens is notorious for even hunting large prehistoric exactly. land mammals to death so well so we we, it, we were never virgin to begin with well and that's it you know it's interesting you, you bring that up because you know i was listening to a talk by Stuart brand um and one of the the, the big things he said isn't really important you know that, that geoengineering could do that's extremely important is bring back the woolly mammoth 
Because if you were to bring back the woolly mammoth in a place like Sub-Saharan Africa, it could... I forgot what, what it was, but it could, like, patent down the ground and uh, produce better planes. Or it would, it would, you'd essentially add a new a return an apex predator to to the land, and that that could have huge, you know, positive ecological impacts. Because they're when they reintroduced, uh, let's say, wolves to to Yellowstone, there was a huge, huge positive feedback loop that basically. When the wolves started to hunt down the deer, the deer weren't around to hunt down uh, something else, and those animals came back and they were able to help something else, like they improved the rivers. And they, I, I mean that that's kind of like an example of, but it, it, you know it, how going back to your point, humans when we were hunter gatherers, we had a large impact on the planet. I mean we definitely hunted things to extinction. And now, in a way, we're looking to rectify that. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah. and we see this in developing nations where, I mean, I, I constantly hear, and this is one argument I've seen with Plant of the Humans where we have, you know, there are too many of us around, and it's like, okay, but what do you want to do about it? It's like, I think anyone who bitches about the population of the plant is an immediate hypocrite, but. The thing that really is a key about that is when you look at energy use in developing nations and the poorest ones, they have the highest birth rates. So if you get the more energy energy access and reduced uh, or sorry and more resources, you lower birth rates significantly. Like the in the United States, the birth rates have been very stabilized for a long time. In fact, I think. They've actually declined a little bit. We still have a high, uh, you know, a lot of immigrant immigrants coming into to the U.S. and that's why it's been pretty stable. But that's a, you know, that that's a big argument for human development. Is but in, in and to add on to that, when we uh, start to become more evolved and rely less on nature, we could become better stewards of the environment itself. So and we see see this with the national park system. And the national forest system. It's like, do you really think that we'd have those regulations in place if we were so reliant on nature to to begin with? It's like, no, we've managed to free up resources and get people, you know, out of agrarian living and into, you know, major metropolitan areas and you know, de developed areas so they can be away from nature. They can still go and enjoy it and use resources when they need to, but they're not heavily reliant on it. See what yeah, I mean? being, yeah. being in being in a uh, harmony with nature is basically a definition of poverty because you 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 just have such a lack of you know high material standards of living that you know you just have to rely on nature for everything and that is rough that's that's rough and we we talked about this a little bit but uh, there is a correlation between increased economic development and increased environmental conditions in some aspects like for example deforestation uh i mean of course carbon emissions are the biggest issue with economic development decreasing environmental conditions but aside from that economic development i've heard actually allows people to give a shit about nature and not pollute it like you see this i'd say this is the reason behind like the plastic pollution crisis is 
poorer countries have all this plastic. And of course, uh, other countries dump plastic there, which is fucked up. But they, well, if you're in poverty, you don't give a shit about some plastic bottles in, in a ditch by, you know, your your river. You're trying to survive. But in a, in a, in a more developed country that has more capital, it's increased standard of living, you 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 can actually you know clean shit up no no exactly and you have the money to do that and that that what you just said is a very important so one of the the critical things to pollution is like we look at the plastic pollution pollution problem in the oceans you might uh, so many people think it's in the it come from the it comes from the united states and europe and uh you know the, I, I i like to call it the global north but the real most of it actually comes from nine rivers on the plant. Like over ninety percent of it, I, I think you you know I think only one percent of it actually comes from like a development place like the United States. But ninety percent of it comes from rivers in Asia and Africa. Yeah, and a big and, and part of that. Ha- yep. Yeah, we have uh, the energy infrastructure to put stuff in landfills, monitor them, transport it. You know, it's exactly. It, it, yeah, so. we can spend the money on that, and like we can overspend for environmental regulations which we should i I, you know i I think that's a good thing but those people can't there was actually a a really i don't want to say a funny video it was actually kind of sad where literally a dump truck backed up to a coastline at a port and just you know tipped the truck up and just dumped a huge amount of plastic into the local bay or, or river and it was it wasn't due to the fact that they wanted to pollute the area. It's because they didn't have the money to properly dispose of it. Right. And that this is like this goes back to why energy use is so important. It's like if you want to recycle materials or develop new ones, if you want to give people proper clothing, uh, anything, you have to have energy to do it. It's like you're you're not. And this also goes with how we treat different kinds of waste. I mean, whether it's any kind of waste at all, like, I mean, there was, um, there's actually, I don't know if you, uh, know Tom Blees, but he's a really nice guy, brilliant, he's, he's, uh, you know, worked a lot with the Institute, and, um, he runs a, a foundation, I forget, I forget what it's called, but he's the president of it, and, he actually has said there are these things called plasma tortures that essentially allow us to recycle any material because it kind of works like, uh, you know, the replicators in Star Trek, where essentially yeah, you're just, talking uh, about basically just just shaving things down to their component molecules and then exactly. building them back up. Because I mean, it, you can you can do that with with, with plastic. Plastic's not very recyclable right now, but you can you can use you can eventually use. Uh, like like we do with oil, we actually break apart the big molecules to turn into smaller molecules, which you can make into gasoline. Like if we could just take our plastic polymers and apply a shit ton of heat and pressure to them, you could and a catalyst, you can break them apart into small smaller pieces and then regenerate your plastic, or heck, even turn it into gasoline. You know, it's, it's well, it, we, we can do all sorts of cool stuff once we have the energy. Exactly, but this is I mean, but this is for any material. Like these things will literally. It gets things so hot that it breaks them down to their fundamental elements, and so you can recycle them out. Uh, you know, and you can do this. Even I, I think it even separates out uh, silica, which is a really, to me, very fascinating. But 
you know, carbon, sulfur, any, any, the yep. base components. And so, but you pulling need energy those, to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, like, like pulling all the precious metals out of computer chips. Like, like yeah. there's like, like I've seen the process that they do where they like take your computer, they throw it in a shredder. They basically just, they uh, like break apart all the way the plastic, shove that away. Then they take all the metal and then they dissolve it in acid. Then they use electrochemical plates to pull, pull. It's a big process, but again, that requires energy. It's an industrial process. And the reason why recycling just is not worth our time is because the, the costs to to reprocess it are just more costly than getting the new raw material to begin with. And and, and that is a a problem, I think. That's and that's and that's like one of the future views of eco-modernism is we can have a circular closed capitalist economy. You know what I mean? Exactly. Oh, no, exactly. And that's actually, well, that's one of the things that I think is so critical and important about research into space travel is because one of the things when you go to a planet, I mean, you don't have, you have to make the most out of every single molecule you yes, have. have to be recycled. Exactly. I mean, you have to really optimize to the fullest extent. I mean, and it's not cheap to do it this way, but it's like, if you want to survive, you have to be able to you know, produce a potential new food, especially when you're you're in space and not on a planet, and you don't have access to resources like carbon or or potential water. I mean, you yeah, have like, to. Like, yeah, like in, in space. Sorry, in space. I'm just, I kind of nerd out about stuff like this. Again, spaceship Earth. This is goes back into the name of this podcast. But you can, if if you're on a mission to Mars, you need to be able to breathe out that carbon dioxide some sort of plant, hopefully like some sort of high-tech greenhouse, needs to take that carbon dioxide, turn it into sugars to feed you with. And then you have to, you know, so you can do a closed cycle of respiration uh, without having to, in, like, mine any new materials or try to get them from asteroids or whatever. Uh, like, you can do all sorts of things. Like, you know, you could turn your urine into drinking water again. And then right. you could probably use the urine the, the nitrogen in the urine to fertilize your plants that you're breathing on with the carbon dioxide. So like, yeah, so you have to, you, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's No, just, you have to you be know. able to reuse. I mean, this is the thing I get very annoyed about when I hear, oh, we have a finite amount of resources on the planet. There, there, there is not enough for everyone to go around. And it's, <laughs> I mean, first off, Yes, the resources are "quote unquote" finite, but it's not like they just evaporate into thin air where you and you can't do with anything with them again. I mean, that's when you use a resource and you don't reuse it, you put it somewhere. The elements from those resources are still there, "quote unquote," you, whether they're in a landfill or you sent them off to your, you know, some other place that isn't in your possession anymore. It's like all the carbon molecules, all the oxygen, hydrogen all the raw materials i mean they still exist it's about our ability to recycle and reuse them and right now the way we recycle i mean we can only recycle like we can we can recycle the things like aluminum heavy metals uh you know plastic are a different story we we can only actually glass. recycle yeah glass glass, glass we can do that forever yeah you need a, you need to melt down like use so much energy to melt down steel melt down uh, glass, aluminum, not so bad. Aluminum is actually one of the best recyclable things yes, right now. Yes, correct. 
But in terms of, I mean, this goes for anything. I mean, it's the matter is still there. I mean, there's the law of conservation of matter. Matter is neither created nor destroyed. It's about reforming it into other forms of matter. And so that's the that's the key thing is being able to do this over time. And that's how that's how we can get everyone up to a standard of living that's that equates to the United States or Europe on the planet. And why we really should. It's like because we have enough resources, it is all about what we do with those resources and how they interact in the natural world. Oh, oh and, so here's here's another yeah. example of when it comes to recycling. People have this idea that we're going to run out of fresh water. Naturally occurring fresh water based on evaporation and condensation. Sure, but we are sitting on a huge amount of water. And what we we're going to just give it up and say, "Oh, it's salty. Let's just leave it there." No, within the power, you can take the salt out of the ocean and give people drinking water forever. Hell, if we had enough desalination plants like in Israel and you know northern Africa, we could turn the Sahara into a green like like we could use that as a basin to to put carbon sequestration in the form of plants. Right. I just I don't know. I'm I'm talking about like 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 like, like big stuff here and I get tired of people in this. I'm going on a little bit of a rant here. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> And, well, I, and I mean, I, not to piss off my non-capitalist loving friends, but I know for a fact you and I, we're, we're definitely in, like love what capitalism does, even though well, it has some issues. I'm a moderate, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. right. But, but we aren't like, right. okay, capitalism has failed because they're just like, oh, capitalism cannot exist based on infinite, infinite growth on a finite planet. But I'm just like, wait a second. Economic growth is not the same as material use and pollution growth yeah. in the future we can because if you think about it anything that's thrown away if you if you have a way to recycle it affordably you're wasting it so we could get to a point where where our industrial processes are just so intense that it's just closed loop and we can still enrich people bring the you know the lowest among us into you know uh, an average middle class Your, European European standards of living I think are like yeah. the minimum we should be shooting for but yeah that's I know I know exactly what you're saying and that's that's really the, the what I I've always found enticing about space it's not just the exploration part and uh, the, the discovery of you know through science and uh, technology which I th I think is my favorite thing about it but it's also learning how we become better stewards of ourselves in terms of how we advance and be able to use resources. Cause I mean, you have to, you have to on some level be good at recycling in space. I mean, there's no, there's no way around that. It's like, you yeah. cannot, you, you can't pull when you're millions of miles away from earth. It's like, or pull from resources when you're mil millions of miles away from earth. It's just not feasible. So I think that that's, so the, the idea of minimize growth or that we should almost cap off growth and you know, we should all, live in energy poverty it's like this is where why i say as it's a bad side cult you know it's negative. honestly well it's just so negative it, it's like yeah. I, I this is why i say think co the one big positive about covid19 is it is going to show the the degrowthers what minimal energy use truly looks like yes. because we have it's had paralyzing. yeah we have people who are living at home we have essentially them looking at 
key resources like food. I mean, they're relying on water. They're relying on like electricity. I, but it's like this is you know they have medical services again. But this is the the key thing. This is what minimal energy use looks like. No one people want to live. They do not want to survive, and that's what we are doing right now. Is we're surviving, and that is. I think the whole key argument against degrowth is the fact that when when you're living in a minimal in minimalistic energy standards, you're not living. And it's like, and so even but even if you were just surviving, to get everyone up to that standard living stand the standard of living of just surviving like at U.S. levels of surviving, if we want to do that for everyone in the world for the billions of people that don't have any access to modern energy services we're gonna have to produce twice as much energy by at least 2050 and it's gonna need to go up a lot more than that by 2100 so it's just not it's not feasible or practical to say that we shouldn't do that so and the thing is if it's not carbon free we're looking at a climate system that'll be so inhospitable not maybe i'm a doomer but i'm worried about climate change not because of of how it will affect the natural world and our civilization, I'm I'm worried that it'll ruin everyone's standard of living, and we will get to a point where economic growth is damn near impossible because of just the constant destruction we're having to deal with. Fires rebuild, floods rebuild. You know, it's to where we can't catch a break. I think, and, yeah, yeah, and our 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 standard of living is directly tied with the stability of the climate system, and I'm. We, we we rose out of the industrial uh, the agricultural revolution on this you know gentle like shelf of climate stability and I think we're smart enough to keep it that way but that's yeah. just me. no no I think no I think you're right and this is one of the reasons like to me I I, I would really love to see someone like a Charlie Baker come in or, or you know a Bill Weld. Are, you know, a, a, like a, a middle of the road Republican come in to deal with climate change because they like those two care a lot about it. And I think that that would actually be a very good spin on it, because I, I hate how climate change has become a politically based issue. It should have never become a politically Tell based issue. It. Yeah. But it, I think it became a political issue really with people on the left and i don't want to play the blame game here I'm not trying to well i mean but I mean, the, the, the right too the right no well yeah just let me yeah let me let me just think about this so i think it really battle lines were drawn because it, i think it really came out with an inconvenient truth like that's when this became a political issue because that movie essentially said oh you know this is capitalism's fault this is humanity's fault but we need to drastically change our lifestyles and how we live and you know do x y and z that are not traditional with the norm but then what that led to was conservatives being like no wait a minute we have to essentially change like abandon our civilization no that's bullshit we we're not going to do that and that's where the denialism came in with climate change was this idea that Oh, we have to essentially we have to either be drastic degrowthers or drastic growthers that ignore the problem. And I, I think that's really the issue yeah, they, on they why. Off of each other. 
yeah, political, yeah, why we have not had political traction. But I, I mean, personally, what I, so getting back to this, I would love to see someone like a moderate Republican get in because I think they would treat climate change as a national security issue in terms of, so at least the way I think climate change should be dealt with is we really should treat it like we did the national highway system. So you might not know this, but the national highway system was sponsored by Eisenhower and built under the Department of Defense because, I mean, people will think that it, yeah, it was meant for the economy and for growth. It was oh, actually – war. Cold war yeah, all the way. Yeah, it was meant – and I didn't even know this until uh, my dad told it to me because he was a history major. My dad told this to me too. Isn't that oh, did he really? <laughs> yep. it, it was meant to be able to move troops and tanks across the country very quickly in case we were invaded by the Soviets. And so it, I don't know if this this fact is still true, but I think it's every three miles is a straight shot of highway so you could land a plane on the highway to drop off troops like the, But that was it. Yeah, no, it, it was like I didn't I was like, what, really? Jesus. <laughs> but that was a huge success story with that uh, with because the highway system has become a huge integral part of our economy. It's benefited us in ways we never thought possible. But. I think the same thing should be done with defense, because if you preach climate change as a national security issue, but treat it in a practical way, and this is why I think a Republican would be better at suit towards this, nothing against Democrats, but in saying, or listen, Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. No, well, in terms of like, no, I'm not going to, I love Tulsi, but I, I, yeah. I wouldn't trust her. You're not going to go there. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love her, but I'm not going to, I'm not oh, going well, to trust her. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 But, if we treat this like a national security issue where we order up nuclear plants, we order up CCS, we order up renewables where they make sense and deploy them where they make sense, yep. that is a, where I think we can make real headway on this. But we do it in a practical way. Now, I love that's the hard part. Yeah. And, and I think that that's where it's really going to become a decisive thing. I mean, that's the the big phase I think that should happen with clean energy deployment, where we essentially allocate a few hundred billion dollars each year, but we put it under the defense budget because I don't care who, who you are in Washington. The defense budget is king and you are not going to fuck it. You're not going to fuck with it because the defense budget is how your state or local government gets money to do work, period. But on top of that, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and I, I've done some lobbying and every time uh, my state capitol building, but uh, a good way to get... It's really easy to have a narrative that Republicans will buy into. It's like, yeah. look, China and Russia are going to kill us on nuclear power if we aren't a competitor. Two, it's it's for it's for global uh, it's for energy security. Look, we are yeah. untouched by gas prices if we've got our nukes running. Like, if we did a, you know, and I, I think people are like, oh, we need to deploy clean energy. I don't see what's wrong with trying to say, let's push a nuclear power program like France did because I'm I'm tired of all oh, the only way we can go forward is with insular I'm just like why if, if nuclear was a keystone part of this shit we could really fix this thing hell hell I would be better with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her Green New Deal if nuclear was a cornerstone of it because I I think it could work if nuclear what, what was the cornerstone it would be the right type of jobs the right type of infrastructure you know, insulating I, us from climate disasters, you know. 
Well, I think the key thing, so there are a few things you just touched on, and I, I'm glad you brought up the, the security issues with Republicans, because I know that, that that is something that they would get behind. I mean, they, they'll always love nuclear for their own reasons, but that that is a key point, is the security issue and combating against China and Russia. And that's really why this has become a bipartisan issue in Washington, is because of those issues. But I'm going to say, I think that we we can't just focus on nuclear for a few reasons. The first is we it does not have enough bipartisan support countrywide. Sure. Washington, it definitely is that has changed a lot, but there's too much energy tribalism and I mean Phil, we're guilty of this. We are one hundred percent guilty of this with nuclear. I mean renewables definitely have their place. As much as wind and solar have limitations and certain other renewables they still have their place too, and we should not shun them from from the spotlight. But True. if you were try to, to try and make like, uh, I think there should be a nuclear deployment program, but it should be under the scheme of a larger national energy program that where each I, I it, technology. Go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of climate fee. And, I mean, carbon fee and dividend. I've you, do you know much about Citizens Climate Lobby? I, I've, I, yeah, I, I've heard of it. I mean, I, it's a, I, I, is it I think price it, on carbon or? Uh, no, not price on carbon. It's literally a, a slowly increasing fee on carbon extraction that gets redistributed back to every person. So it's like a universal so a price, basic that, income. That's a price on carbon then. Yeah, well, I, I don't like to say price, but it's. it's but, no, but that is what it's not a tax on carbon. It's a, a price on carbon where literally right. fossil companies will get charged on on the emissions they they produce and then that money does not go to the government it goes to individuals directly right i mean that's yep james hansen is big on that oh no no i'm a, i'm a big support i think that's a key part of it i i sorry i thought that i i, I was thinking of carbon price but car, carbon price is the same as carbon fee and dividend i sorry uh, but i i completely completely agree with that i think <coughs> and frankly i think that's a way to do it no, it, that, it really is, that, yeah. And that way, renewables can be like, okay, what is your, you know, if there's a price on carbon, they're going to be like, okay, in an area, like, let's say it's in a place where solar would be good. They're just like, okay, here it actually makes sense, like Arizona. We'll do yeah. solar and nukes and some wind. And then in the tornado alley, we'll do nukes and wind. And then where there's a lot of rivers, nukes and hydro. Just it, No, just exa exactly. And that's like the key, the, What 100% accurate. That's the key thing I love about carbon price, aka carbon fee and dividend, is the fact that you create more neutrality in the market. And this is where I think – so I, I've I've always been under the belief there should be two pillars to clean energy deployment in the U.S. The first was really – I kind of went to a topic all already about where the government treats it as a national security issue and goes into a, a deployment frenzy like we do with – defense now in terms of building subs and tanks and uh, you know uh, different ships and uh, and all that but the second is the free market approach where we lift the red tape so i, I like to call it like the hybrid approach to clean energy deployment because right now what we have is this mixed up terrible like subsidy you know where we're gonna we try to push certain technologies into the market and it just it doesn't work but if we lift the red tape off of certain technologies or you know, certain levels of red tape and then let the market compete along with that deployment, you know, plan, I think that would give us 
put us on a true path and it would just create a more balanced like push towards that that's fair that everyone could get behind like i think that right now we should get rid of most of the subsidies and put them towards r&d because i think it's, it's just so yeah. or at least we keep loan guarantees but we get rid of subsidies i think that yeah so yeah like so subsidies are uh it's a way of distorting it's a way of kind of distorting the market and uh uh it's just not very fair you know and yeah and i think yeah so but, that, but i think a national program like that would be be great and i and i think things like nuclear and eco-modernism can be more bipartisan because it's focusing on 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 solutions like there's no reason why a a social social justice you know leftist and a you know, free market capitalist Republican can, how can you disagree on this stuff? Because it's, it, 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 it's, it comes down to like the pragmatic solution, you know? Well, you know, I think that there's, here's why it's, it, it goes back to that, the idea of that ideological, staying attached to that ideological narrative, because Renewables, uh, I, the renewable-only future has a very large enticement to it in the fact that, you know, you're not relying on big corporations to get, essentially change your your energy supply and your and your your the way of living for society. You're you're really relying on yourselves. It's a, it's a form of it's seen as a form of liberation in the sense that you're, you know, self-sufficient. You're g- g- I don't want to say living off the land, but you're not dependent on larger groups with larger interests at hand. It's like you're you're dependent more on the smaller community, and I think that's what's seen as renewable. It's like they're they're a source of quote unquote freedom from tyranny, and that that's the big problem. I I think I would actually even argue that nuclear is seen in this light as being more tied to the quote unquote industry, even though that's a crock of shit because utilities run the plants, not a, a, a nuclear industry, but more than fossil fuels, because it, it's, a, you have the, these large scale, like centralized plants where, you know, you have everything instead of it all being spread out and small. And this is, you know, just that you see what I'm saying though, is that I think that's a key reason why we haven't been able to really come together, why you can't have a capitalist or a social justice warrior come together and just like talk this issue through is because of that. They're seeing two different narratives to, and you know, and their narratives are competing and it's preventing the problem from getting acknowledged or fixed. Right. So I, I've also, uh, I have a few of my like older friends that are my dad's age and they've been around. So I've taken their wisdom, but uh, one of my good friends, Ron, he keeps telling me about, uh, you know, we need to frame the narrative to appeal to any political party out there. And I think, yes, uh, yeah, I think, I, and, and I've also noticed there's one political party that I consider myself a part of the Libertarian Party mm-hmm. uh, and all of the, the, uh, all of the, um, you know, they talk about climate change. And I thought, that, wow, that's amazing that they talk about climate change. Wait, so really? Yeah, yeah. And they say, wow. What's the best way to say it? They all say nuclear. Every single one of them. Yeah, that I believe. Oh, yeah. I think I saw you post a, a clip on this. I, yeah. 
Yeah, because because one, it's the it's the narrative of oh the government regulations for nuclear and the crony capitalism are holding us down. Two, oh it's energy liberation, and then for the social justice more leftist crowd, you're just like you know what the fossil fuel industry really wants to say lies about nuclear power. Why? Because it's a threat to their bottom line. Or with Republicans, national security, American leadership. You know you you can do all these things. And you have to just frame the debate to with who you're talking to. And because yeah. we all want the same thing, in my opinion. But hey, yeah. we've been talking for almost two hours now. But uh, uh, I have wow. well, like one, one last question here. Sure. Uh, where do you think eco-modernism could take humanity into the future? And what do you, and if, if we, if eco-modernism does not, you know, become a more mainstream movement do you think that there are any severe consequences to that so your your question is do you think uh, eco-modernism can take us into the future and if that we don't embrace or, it or like or like where could it take us and basically like saying in a way i would argue that we're we're already living under eco-modernism or the ideology of eco-modernism but we don't realize it because we've gotten more intensive through the use of our energy, the use of our, you know, production of our food, produ- you know, how we live our lives in terms of what we've really shrunk our per capita footprint. But I don't think we've realized it or fully embraced it as as the ideology. And I will say, I think that there there may be a consequence if the environmentalist movement doesn't embrace it because the environmentalist movement, or I should say the mainstream movement, is still holding on. They have one key skill that I think could actually save us, quote unquote, if they use it properly. But if if it they don't, then it, it could it, it could be very damaging. And that's that they have the ability to convince the masses. They have the ability to change minds and really wake people up to issues. And that's that's the one thing I really another thing I, I'm going to give them full credit for is they raised the alarm bells on climate change and they got people to start moving and they deserve full credit for that complete True. full credit but what the, what they've implemented just are not the the proper solutions so i think yes and no i mean you know because again i think we have already embraced eco-modernism on some level i think it's just fully accepting it as the new norm for what humanity needs to strive for and and just yeah. keep its eye on the goal but yeah and 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 what's cool about eco modernism is the philosophy. Read read the manifesto, guys. It's it's freaking lit, and it'll make you feel not so depressed about the world, for God's sakes. Uh, but um, it, it's following our current trends. We are seeing a trends into more, you know, intensive agri- uh, uh, industrialized agriculture that with GMOs can use less land. You know, we are we are moving towards. Uh, you know, a mass urbanization. People are moving into into cities, which actually gives nature some room to breathe. You know, and then uh, uh, and then and then we are moving towards more dense sources of fuel, like like it, the, or at least we hope. Like, I mean, people would rather burn gas if they could, which is more dense. And then eventually, like, they'll a lot of the developing world is looking to n- nuclear, and I, I think we are especially like China and stuff. Like I think we are going in that direction and we just need to 
you know, kind of guide it. So it, it, it gets us to where we actually want to go safely, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I want, I feel, I do want to say one, one more thing about just um, the United States and, and its role in, in the fight against climate change. So a lot of people were not happy when we pulled out of the Paris agreement. As much as I don't think we should have it, I really don't think the Paris agreement in general was going to do much. And I, I do think we should get back into it, but the United States is going to become a smaller and smaller part of the problem in terms of overall emissions. Like right now, I think we're only 15% of current emissions. We're a lot higher than that when it, we look at uh, over time. But I think the key role for the United States right now is to kind of to really take a leadership role in our action on climate change. Because I think that's when a lot of other nations are going to see this as a bigger problem and follow a suit. I think that, that that is the biggest thing that we can do right now. And eco-modernism is a way to try and uh, – it sets forth a vision. And I think that the United States could follow that, along with other developed countries like Canada and countries in Europe that uh, – excuse me – just see that vision for a future that's positive, that – you know, where, where we all love each other as a – in terms of we want full um, promising lives and uh, that we can, you know, thrive and uh, continue to advance our culture and our, our technology and just uh, all aspects of life while we're not damaging the national and natural environment. So just wanted yeah, to say that last thing. Absolutely. And you know, there's what's not to like about all this stuff. I, in my opinion, but I'm biased. I think it's the, most scientifically accurate and uh best for humanity and best for nature to to have this new environmental philosophy and uh, it's up to all of us to talk to everyone we know about it not like it's a religion to be spread but that because i think the message is the truth and i think it it, it fits nicely with you know all the progress that we've already made and the progress we can still make and you know yeah it's it's interesting hey uh thanks for talking man like this has been great we'll have you on a again i'm gonna try to put maybe one of these out every month so yeah this is great talking to you uh we'll definitely have you on again uh this is phil ord for spaceship earth talking with matt mcafee uh a member or a previous member of the Breakthrough Institute and all around super genius, which I like to say, engineering <laughs> dude. And we'll uh we'll see all you wonderful people later and have a have a have a terrific rest of your day. Thanks, Phil. It was great being on. I, I hope we can talk again. Thank you for joining us for the premiere episode of Spaceship Earth, hosted by Phil Ord. Uh, we don't have outro theme music for it yet, so I threw something together real quick. And this was actually supposed to come out last night, but, you know, deadlines. Uh, it's actually fine that it came out today because, you guys, Phil is one of the very first friends of Mindwave. I think he is the first friend. And today 
is the one-year anniversary of our very first episode that ever aired, episode one on science communication, which is, uh, you know, full circle all the way back to the beginning. Uh, we don't have Phil set up with his own Patreon and shit for Spaceship Earth yet, so give us a little bit to get all our ducks in a row here, put the whole website rebuild and all that shit too. Uh, but yes, thank you for listening. <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. Oh, and you know me. I totally couldn't help myself. It's, it's the <laughs> squared because the, the speed of light, it gets squared. It's even more. It's even bigger because <laughs> because it's times this by itself. It's squared. E equals MC squared. <laughs> <laughs>